0: Hey guys, this is And The Writer Is, and I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with the great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special events, or buy some of our merchandise, go to our website, www.andtheriteris.com. Oh, and if you enjoy this podcast, please rate us on iTunes, or whatever your preferred podcast listening site is. We really appreciate that effort. This week, we are featuring five country music hit makers in honor of the CMA Awards. The biggest stars are coming together on one stage where the heart of country music beats stronger than ever. Watch as Brad Paisley and Carrie Underwood host the 51st annual CMA Awards this Wednesday at 8 o'clock, 7 o'clock central on ABC. See powerful collaborations by Kelsey Ballerini and Reba McIntyre. Brad Paisley and Kane Brown, Maren Morris and Niall Horan and more. It's country's night to shine with unforgettable performances and the best of the best honored in several categories. For more information, visit cmaawards.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals
1: on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on
0: linkedin.com slash achieve today. Today's guest on CMA Week is pretty exciting. Why? Because he is the father of yesterday's guest. How awesome is that? Let me just say, if you aren't familiar with this next songwriter, you've probably been living under a rock. He's a country music legend. He has a ton of number one hits. Uh, I could go through the list, but we're going to talk about it all in this interview. So without further ado, here is, and the writer is, featuring Rhett Aiken. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. This week's artist-writer has written 26, 27 number one songs, has won the CMA Triple Play Award five times, BMI Songwriter of the Year twice, and is the father of a country rock star. His solo career brought him fame, and his writing career made him a legend. From Georgia, this singer has been in the spotlight for over 20 years and hasn't slowed down one bit. And the writer is... One of the greatest living country writers, Red Akins. What's up, dude? How's that
2: for an hey, intro? I, I need you for all my, yeah. everything that I do. I'm Every gonna, session. When I go to dinner, I need you to be like, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. Exactly. The guy who deserves free meals for life.
0: Be like, here's a reservation. Let me tell you about him.
2: <laughs> so
0: here's a six degrees of separation. Uh, my first BMI award is a country BMI award, and uh, you won Songwriter of the Year that year. Awesome. It was what 2014. was your song? Compass for Lady Annabelle. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And you gave a speech where you said that the year before you hadn't won any awards.
2: That's that's right.
0: And and then you won Songwriter of the Year, and it was sort of a shout out to the people who were sitting in the audience who weren't winning awards. And this year I won Songwriter of the Year for, oh, for for BMI Pop. And I took that and that was my you know, social media tweet or oh. whatever. It was just basically saying that you know, for all the people who are out there who are about to kill it and who, you know, for years I wish I would have won right.
2: one award. Yeah, do I get co-publishing you know? on your speech? Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> man. But
0: yeah, the- you, you should know that, you know, that, yep. was, that, that really impacted me as a writer, was just listening to you talk, and I, I, had, I had just gotten into writing in Nashville, mm-hmm. but um, I just, you know... Oh, well, thanks, you.
2: man. Yeah, I really meant that, because I mean, I, I've, I've sat at those awards many years, and, and not gotten an award, and then... Um, it's kind of embarrassing on the years that you do win a lot, and you see all your friends and people that you co-write with often, you know, sit, sitting in the crowd and don't have anything. You know, and this business is so easy to get frustrated. Like we have our wins, but it seems like our when we do win, it lasts very short time, right. and and our like so-called failures seem to last forever. And you're like, yeah, I'm writing all the time and not getting any cuts, and that guy's getting everything. And it's like the moment that you're ready to quit is when you could be right there on the tip of the iceberg of this thing just blowing up, you know? So it was. I guess I was just trying to encourage the people because I'd been in their shoes and I actually was the year before. I, I didn't win a single award the year before. And um, and then the next year I won seven and it was just like, if this is your dream, it, like you can't move to this town just to try to get rich or famous. If If that was my goal, I would have left town in 1999. You know, it's like... You got to love this. It has to be in your, it's just got to, I mean, if you don't pick up a guitar or play a piano or, or do, or write a lyric or something every day, then, then, then you don't love it. You know what I mean? It's just something that you don't even have to try to do. It's something that you want to do. Like there's never a time when I walk in my bedroom and don't pick up my guitar, even if it's for only two minutes. Wow. Um, and I think that the people who really, 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 really love music and that's, and this is what they were meant to do will stick it out regardless of how many awards they get don 't get, how many years it takes, how much money they make or don 't make because it 's something you can 't turn off like i don 't think we choose music, I think it chooses you from an early age and you just can't get you can 't escape it
0: What age did it choose you i mean you 're from georgia
2: i 'm mm-hmm. from Georgia, and uh, I was lucky that you know i didn 't have parents or uncles or aunts that only listened to one style of music. Um, What were they listening to? My uncles were hippies. They were 17, 18, and 69, 70, 71. So when I was with them, it was Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Led Zeppelin, Allman Brothers, Bob Dylan, you know, all the hippie music, Woodstock music. My mom was major, Motown. She grew up in the 60s. She actually saw the Beatles in 1964. Beatles fanatic, Elvis fanatic, Motown fanatic. Um, Did they play music? My mom played piano, my granddaddy played piano. We we had a lot of uh musicians in our family, but nobody serious. Nobody did it was in church or just sitting around the house. So one minute, you know, like I said, I was listening to to uh to the rock music of the early seventies. The next when I was at my grandparents' house, we watched Hee Haw every Saturday night and and they were into, you know, Porter Wagner and Dolly Parton and Merle Haggard and things like that. And then I'd go to school and, and meet friends. And I remember I rapped the entire Rapper's Delight in 1980 to the whole school when I was in fifth grade.
0: No way. Because
2: we'd go roller skating all the time. Skating rinks were the big thing when I was 10, 11 years old. And obviously they didn't play country music or much rock music. It was all cool in the gang and... um you know pop songs, Michael Jackson and Madonna and things like that. So I literally just soaked in every ounce of music. I was I was never like, ooh, I don't like that because it's rap, or I don't like that because it's rock. I, if it's good, it's good to me. And um, did I think, you did you want to do? I mean, what age were you? Like, yeah, I,
0: I should actually start writing my own raps well, or my own. Well, country. I started
2: writing songs by at least ten or ten or eleven, and for some reason, they were all in an English accent. What? Yeah, all my songs were like Sex Pistols, um, The Clash. And I think it's because I remember my mom- What's your
0: first song called?
2: My first song was called Long Live the Queen. Oh, that's pretty um, British. Very British. And I think it's because during that time, Prince Charles and Princess Diana were getting married. And it was the biggest thing in America. Like we actually woke up at five o'clock in the morning to watch the wedding broadcast from London. And I guess I was just so I don't know what it was about the English accents and the in in that music, but I just started writing like semi punk, new wave, you know, like the Cure, uh, things like that. Were you, that were like you my start first a songs. Band no, anything? I didn't because there nobody could play anything. I mean, my brother played uh, his drum set was. Pillows in the bed. Like nice. I'd play my acoustic guitar. We made an album. We made a cassette tape when I was like twelve, and my brother actually played his pillows in the in the bed as the as the drums, and and I and I played guitar. And all of those songs we sung in an English accent, which is they were like Saturday Night Live skits. They were sure. so terrible and so dumb. Can you still sing it? When uh, yeah, one of the, I, yeah it was the first. I remember walking down the road on our farm singing this song. It was like we're living in the slums down don't down, but everyone's happy. Not. Happy, it's gotta be happy. We're gigging with the chums and everyone's (laughs) happy. And what's so funny is that Thomas Rhett and I literally wrote, we're writing, we started this band called The Pints, and uh, we're writing English songs. Um, right now like early eighties English. Like current currently. Currently, right, right now. Uh Thomas Ratt and I and, a, you and a young, young songwriter named Josh Kerr. We did this as a joke in Palm Springs on a writer's retreat we just went on. So I've just been like from the get go a music fanatic, but where I'm from, you got like there was no YouTube. There was no American Idol. There was no way in the world to become a singer.
0: Right.
2: Um so I grew up in a town that was. We have the winningest high school football team ever in America. You can Google it right now. It'll say Valdosta. Georgia. For real? Winningest high school. Did over, you play? Yeah. And where did so you play? quarterback. And so yeah. my whole life was the only dream that you could attain. Where I was from was being a football star. Being a singer was not even like in going, the cards. going pro kind of thing yeah where go they're... to college, go pro whatever I mean you could but the thing is our high school our high school athletes were more we thought they were more famous than Terry Bradshaw or Joe Namath or any of the stars Joe montana, like yeah they 're cool, but what about the quarterback for our high school he's the he 's the greatest thing that ever lived like you you would be on the front page of the newspaper over any murder or theft. Or wreck that happened in town. The front page of the newspaper was the football team, so that was a dream that I could that I could pursue. Playing guitar and writing songs were something that me and my brothers did in our bedroom.
0: Did you end up playing football in in college? Yeah, I went
2: to the University of Georgia,
0: and you played football. Mm-hmm. Yes, at... wow. Yeah.
2: I played. I played my freshman year. And then Thomas Rat came along and uh that kind of ended my, my football career. But I would take my guitar to football camp. Like we would spend the night at the school for two weeks in the summer and I mean we practiced like we were in the Marine Corps. It was the worst. Like the coaches nowadays would get fired if 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 they did what we did back in high school. Like it was like no water breaks.
0: Right, everyone would die of dehydration. Yeah, I mean, and...
2: you would be fired in a heartbeat if, yeah. if if it was the '80s when I played. But um, that was the only dream you could attain, and so everything else was just you just watch MTV and Headbangers Ball and go, God, wouldn't it be cool to be Eddie Van Halen? Like he's got to be from Mars or something. Um, they, those people were like were were literally gods to us. They were unattainable. You could nowadays you could tweet Eddie Van Halen and he might tweet you back. Right. There's absolutely no chance in the world that you could ever meet Eddie Van Halen or Hank Williams Jr. or you know, Merle Haggard or any of those people. So they were gods, gods to us. And now I've met most of my heroes, and it's all I can do not to attack them.
0: Which ones were, were your your main heroes? Mick
2: Jagger's my all-time hero. And you met him? I met him last year. Did you tell him that it was he was all It was total Chris Farley. Really? Like if you've seen the Saturday Night Live skits of Chris Farley... I totally Chris Farley Mick, the drummer for Def Leppard. Um there's been a bunch of guys. I didn't go quite as far as Chris Farley, but it's like remember remember when you're remember when you were in the Rolling Stones? <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Like I think and then there there obviously there's stars now. Beyonce, Justin Timberlake, um Justin Bieber. I mean there's still big stars that kids freak out over. I don't think that kids freak out over athletes or stars like we did as kids because they're too accessible now. You see them on TV all the time. Um when I did was Did you
0: a- play with with people who later became you know household names as far as football players?
2: When I played at Georgia Rodney Hampton went to the um Giants. Uh Bill Goldberg played pro football for a while and became one of the biggest professional wrestlers um ever. Uh, That's so crazy. Yeah, and so, um, but I guess my point was, Kiss was one of my when I when I got my first Kiss album and opened it up and saw the stage on fire and Gene spitting and blood and I was like, I have to figure out a way to do this somehow, but I just don't. There's no road. There's no way to do this. But I've always had that dream in the back of my head that I was going to be a rock star. So you
0: bring your guitar to football camp mm-hmm. and you're writing songs. Yeah, like in between. Yeah, we're just sitting around. Out.
2: Yeah, yeah, you know, we get take a shower, and we go back to the. We slept in the lunchroom on mattresses that ran a semi truck all year Ooh. long, <laughs> and um, we'd sit there and I'd play Leonard Skinner or Sweet Home Alabama. You know, I'd play Hank Williams Junior. I would play whatever I could play on the guitar.
0: Were you ever playing any of your own stuff for people, or were you? Kind Maybe, of probably them? not.
2: Probably because they, those songs were just dumb. I mean, they weren't like real. real. When
0: when do you start writing songs? Even for yourself. It's a weird leap. My first song's high school are awful. Yeah,
2: high school. When you finally when you're finally like just over the moon for some girl, that's when the songs start pouring out. I used to work in the summertime, uh some football players would work at the high school and we would like mow the field and paint classrooms and things like that. And um it was just, you know, from seven AM till seven at night and you're out there pushing a lawnmower in hundred and ten degree heat. There's nothing to do but and you and and another thing is there's no cell phones, so the last time you talked to that girl was last night on the phone or maybe two days ago, and you she hasn't called, and you called her and her mom said she wasn't there. you are like dying, you're thinking about this girl nonstop you can't see what she's doing on Instagram, you can't text her like. I may never talk to this girl again. I don't know. It really brings, I I believe, I think back in those days, the the pining for people, the longing, the missing was way more real than it is today. Because you get in a fight with your girlfriend now, you text her as soon as she drives out of the house. You're like, come back. What happened? You know, and she texts you back, and it's an all night text fest. You know, back then, it was like you either got in a fight or you kissed the girl goodnight. You didn't see her again for three days and you couldn't talk to her unless she happened to pick up the phone or you drove by our house and she was there. So I think that's what really inspired me to start writing more real songs.
0: Do you find yourself writing about with that emotion more than the emotion you deal with today? Like, do you tend to go back to like- Oh yeah, oh, yeah, all, yeah. all
2: our songs go back to high school because okay. that's when it was fresh. That's when that's when the fire was hot. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like now I'm 47. It's like I've written every love song, breakup song, cheating song, drinking song. It's like I've written every subject matter that there is to write. But back in those days, this was the first time you ever poured your thoughts out onto a sheet of paper. It was way more exciting and and I think emotional and- and uh, you were living it at the time. Now I don't really live those. You know I don't. I don't live that anymore. Right. So
0: you have Thomas after freshman year of mm-hmm. college. How I know that he moves to Nashville when he's five. So what happens within the five years from freshman year of college to yeah. well,
2: to I, moving to Nashville? I thought my life was over. I mean I don't know if really? you remember the Kenny Chesney song called "There Goes My Life." Yeah. Um, where the guy has a kid, and he's like, my life's ruined, and then later on, the kid moves off, and he's like, there goes my life, you know, my everything. I was dating his mom. We were. We, she was my girlfriend. She got pregnant, uh, like, in the summer of 89, and, you know, I'm playing football at Georgia, and blah, 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 and next thing you know, my whole life of football since I was six, from the winningest high school ever, like, my dreams of being, you know, Tom Brady or whatever are, like, this is not happening anymore. I'm going back home, and I'm driving a gas truck working for my dad. Like, this is like life just got real, like real quick. Yeah. So. Yeah, and so during that time period, um, I guess because there was no more football, I guess I got really used to to, um, I guess adulation. I, you know, it was like. Like I said, you grew up in a town book. like I did and, it, and all, the only thing that people talk about is football. It's like Friday Night Lights, if you've ever seen that yeah, movie or that miniseries. It's the only thing people talk about. They talk about it at breakfast, lunch, supper. They go to church and pray about it. It's football, football, football. My dad couldn't go down the street without somebody going, we do think about that game Friday night? You know, how's Rep doing? How's his arm feeling? You know, it was like these are these people's life. And now suddenly, I mean, I guess I got too used to it. And it's like now I'm driving a gas truck from my dad and about to have a kid. <laughs> so, did I'm you nine, go, I'm 18, so you I I'm 19 years old, you know? You, moved, you did go move back home. Yeah, we moved back home, home yeah. And it your got girlfriend married.
0: came too. Oh, is your girlfriend from Georgia? Where we're you grew from, from grew up? the same town, yeah. Oh, okay. So. We went to
2: Georgia together. And so, uh, we, so we came back home from the summer and then we got married that summer. And uh, so here I am now, I'm, I'm working, I went from- 19 years I went old from too, what's right, Rhett doing, how's he something. doing at Georgia to heard Rhett's having a kid, you know? What's he doing now? He's driving a gas truck for his dad. Um, and so that was a really, 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 now that I look back on it, I see all the ways God did things in my life that I didn't know back then. You know, it was like he he saw something that he said, we got to put the brakes on this and we're taking a left turn right here. Um.
0: Yeah, I mean how I, even he, even if you're the most successful football player, you're not playing for 20 plus years. Right. And then you can be the most successful artist, writer and you can work for 20 plus years. Right. So obviously, yeah. you know. Yeah, I think it all it out. all
2: worked out, but um
0: how do you go from a gas station? Well, so to
2: I'm Nashua. so 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 I'm driving, you know, I'd be there at six thirty in the morning and I had my little route that I knew I had to go to this farm or this place and deliver a bunch of diesel fuel to this tobacco farm or, or whatever. And I'm in that truck it's just like pushing that lawnmower. I'm in my truck just driving for hours and hours and hours, and I didn't have a radio. That that truck did not have a radio or air conditioner in it. And so I'm bored out of my mind, and all I'm doing is writing lyrics down on the back of the tickets, you know, that we would write up when I deliver the gas. So that really propelled my songwriting. I started writing like mad, and then I randomly ran into a buddy from high school who played guitar, and we said we ought to get together and and uh, and just start playing around town. This is for fun. So we got together and started playing like at the Holiday Inn lounge. Or frat parties, or it could be a restaurant that had a deck, and we'd be in the corner, you know, playing the latest songs. And every now and then, I'd slip one of mine in. And so I started playing three nights a week. And you know, when you're from a small town and nobody else can play music, they think you're the greatest. You know, they're like, "Dude, man, you're better than Garth Brooks." You're, you know. But at and, and, this
0: point, you were thinking, "I'm going to." You're no longer writing British pop no, no, songs. No, no, you're no. Like, I'm, writing songs. I'm writing country songs. Right? Yeah, and. and mm-hmm. So somewhere in there you you started Yeah, because country on that. Yeah, it
2: was like at that time I mean, I would always I mean Hank Williams Jr was my hero. He's the one that really made me want to write songs. But around 88, 89, Garth Brooks, Alan Jackson, Clint Black, Travis Tritt, like this huge explosion happened in, in country music. Um and, you know, I was hearing these songs on the radio and watching them on, on the videos and, and, you know, I really started writing country songs and everybody at home was like, I'm telling you, man, your songs are as good as Alan Jackson, which they, obviously they were not, but they thought they were. And I, after about two years, I just, got, I, I just got sick of hearing people say, I need to do this, I need to do this. And so we just packed up and moved to Nashville.
0: Did what did your wife say when you said, she was you know, like, I'm going to go to, we should go to Nashville. <laughs> I, I, should, I should do something more stable, like become a, an artist.
2: Right, yeah, that was, yeah, everybody was shocked. Um, they're like, you're going to move to Nashville and try to be a singer. So all they right, all cool. tell
0: you. They all tell you, "Oh, you're better than Alan Jackson. Oh, right. you're better but than." But then Greg when Brooks. you move, they're and then like, "You, you are you like, what are you talking about? You're not better than Alan
2: Jackson. we yeah. I mean, were yeah. just
0: telling you that to make you feel good." Yeah, because it's like <laughs> I
2: said, there was no YouTube. There was no. There was no any. There was no way to get there. There was no map. Had you recorded
0: anything at this point? Th- th- like, yeah. I two-
2: met this one kid that had a little recording studio, and I, and I did record one song. Um, and so you know, my granddad was one of my biggest. Uh, he was my hero, and, and he was a huge dreamer. My granddad believed one plus one equaled one billion. My granddad was just like, no, it doesn't matter what you want to do, you can do it. And um, he was my biggest supporter, and he said, you want to do this? I said, I mean, yeah, but I mean, how in the world? I don't know what to do. And He said, he said well, I'm, I called my lawyer today and asked him if he knew anybody in Nashville. And he knows an entertainment lawyer that he went to school with, and he said they want y'all come to Nashville. I'm like, "What you know my granddad just like was, you didn't take no for an answer at all, and so uh, he we, we got in touch with this lawyer in Nashville, and uh, me and my granddad and the, and the, his lawyer friend we drove to Nashville one day and uh, met with that lawyer, the entertainment lawyer, and he also brought a songwriter along with him that he represented named John Gerard and they threw me in this room and they said, "Play us some songs, you know so i I played them some things that I'd written, I played them some current songs that are out on the radio and and they were like, "Yeah, I mean you know you need work and you know you're not there yet, but if this is what you want to do, come on so we went back home and made the decision where we were going to move to nashville and um that's how that's how it started
0: so you moved to Nashville it's basically nineteen ninety five or
2: no, something. no we we moved in the, the fall of oh, ninety two Thomas ninety two he was okay, two, okay, yeah okay. okay.
0: So you move you move then and it only takes you three years to have number one songs. Yeah, it was it so, was crazy. I mean, as much as they they were obviously supportive of you and saying, or you know, the your lawyer and John Gerard, right? Mm-hmm. They, they obviously thought that you you had talent, but it's one thing to be like, you have talent. It's another thing to sort of see it through. What's a, what's the process of going from
2: well, move, moving yeah. here
0: and being like, yeah, I moved to Nashville to well, all of a sudden? I the moved to town did. and
2: I just luckily met this guy named Jerry Smith who was wanting to start a co venture with Sony Publishing. And he found me and a girl named Terry Clark basically at the same time who ended up being a big country star. And he took us to Sony Music, and we met with Paul Worley, uh, who went on to you know produce the Dixie Chicks and million Lady Annabelle and a million different artists. And he's a, he was a great session player. Um, he took Terry and I over there, and we played him our songs. And he goes, "Why not? Let's do this." You know. So we so we got a publishing deal in 1993, and uh, so and- I just started writing every day. They started booking me with everybody in town. So I'm writing with everybody and were um, you done
0: then thinking oh I, I'm gonna have to move back and drive a Well, I
2: made myself promise we'd move back by by the time I was twenty five. If you weren't if we, if something wasn't going on by twenty five, we were how gonna old move back. Were you I was twenty two.
0: Oh, so it happened much faster than Yeah, that. so
2: I was like if this is not happening by twenty five. And my first single came out a month before I turned twenty five. So um so anyway, I was writing songs and uh singing my own demos and we were pitching them to artists mark chestnut was on a new label called Decca, and mark wright was running the label and we sent our songs to mark chestnut and we got a call from mark wright and frank liddell who's a giant publisher now and producer and said we don't really hear these songs from mark chestnut but we love the songs and we love the guy singing them who is that you know so next thing you know i go over to uh to Deca. Deca and hang out with Mark Wright. And then Paul Worley, who's my publisher, all of a sudden becomes the head of the label at Sony. And so now I've got Sony want me, I got I got Deca want me. And it was one of those things where once somebody wants you, everybody wants you. Whether they really want you or not, they just don't want to miss out. You know right. what I mean? So it was like, next thing I know, I have three or four record labels wanting to sign me. Did you
0: understand what was happening at the I time? didn't. I didn't
2: understand any contracts. I didn't understand what points were. I didn't understand you know, any of the legal jargon in the, in the contracts? It was just, I'm getting a record deal, you know, like anybody. And I got a big advance, you know, what I thought that was like 25 grand or something. I was like, can you believe we got $25,000? Like, like this is happening, you know? And then, uh... And what was really cool is, uh, so I was kind of floating in between the labels. I didn't know which one I wanted to go to because I really liked everybody at, at all the labels. And I was talking to Bruce Hinton, the head of MCA. and He said, "What's it going to take to get you? Well, I mean, what is it? You want more money? What do you want?" And I said, "I would really, it would really be cool if Reba McIntyre and her husband manage me, you know." And he was like, "Let me call him real quick." He just picks up the phone and calls Norval Blackstock and was like, "Hey, I got this kid, blah blah." So I, I'd known Narvel Narvel a little bit, and then a couple of weeks later, Narvel and Reba are driving to Huntsville, Alabama, for their tour rehearsal. And I get a call, and Reba's on the phone, and she's like, "Hey, Rhett, you want to work with us?" You know, what I mean, it was like it, it was like everything just started rolling. I Reba then I went on calls, tour. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 <laughs> I, I, so I'm on crazy. tour with Reba. I mean, I've never yeah. I've never been in front of an audience. I mean, I've played in front of like.
0: Yeah, you were doing like frat, frat houses and yeah, stuff, yeah. but
2: I've never been with a whole band and in our own amps and mics and twenty thousand people. And next thing you know, I'm opening for Reba McIntyre Were you terribly nervous? I was. I, I was like about to die. Like I was praying backstage that this was a dream. Like I was. I, I wanted to not do this anymore. I was like, I'm gonna die out there. Like I, this is not gonna that happen. happen. How long did it take before you <laughs> felt like you weren't going to die? Two shows. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. thought I was the baddest thing ever. Because like, Norval wanted me to do this thing where we walk. We, he said, okay, everybody's here to see Reba. Some people are here to see Tracy Bird. Nobody's here to see you. What are you going to mean? What, how are you going to stand out? He wanted me to start at the back of the arena and walk all the way to the front of the arena for my first song. And I and um, I was like, absolutely not. Hank Jr. wouldn't do that, and I'm not doing that. And that's stupid He's like, all right, whatever. you want to be just like every other artist and fine. So, day of show, I decide I want to do it. Let's just try it. Let's just go for it. So, we did it and it worked. It was, a, I mean, it was awesome. Uh, we did it for two nights and I thought I had, I, I was like, I am Mick Jagger. Like, I've got this whole thing figured out in two shows. So, on the third show, we always walk, before the show, we always practice, we did a practice run. I was like, what do we got to practice for? All I got to do is jump off the freaking. Box back there by the soundboard and walk up the thing. I don't. I don't even practice. They're like, okay, so we're in Chattanooga, and what we didn't realize is that the the seating arrangements were different in Chattanooga than they were the two nights before. There was there was aisles that went all the way to the stage. On this night, the first five rows went all the way across. So if you went down the middle aisle, you couldn't get You're it. You fridge. were stuck at row five. So I jump off the, the box, you know, all the lights are shining on me, I'm singing half the verse or whatever, and I jump off the box. And instead of going around the side like I had the two nights before, I decide I'm gonna give the the middle part of the crowd their money's worth and Red Akins, who they've never heard of, is gonna walk right beside you and you're gonna get to slap his hand. And so I go hauling butt down the middle of the aisle and I hit aisle five and I'm stuck. There's, I can't do anything. So by this time, the second chorus is over. My road manager's scrambling. They're grabbing me by the by the shirt and they're dragging... I have to walk all the way back to the soundboard by this time, go around and then go down the side by the time I get down the side. The song's over like I sang the entire first song was on the floor of the of the arena, and Narvel's freaking out, and he's mad and then for my one last big act. I decided that I would stand in the chair on the corner right before you get to the stage. And I stood in the chair and it folded up on my leg. And so now I'm now I'm stuck. <laughs> <The same. laughs> now I'm stuck in the um, in the chair at the arena. And they have to, the guy has to move and they have to unfold it and I have to get out. and Then I finally get on stage. And then I grab my guitar and the strap is hooked around the, the guitar stand and I drag my guitar stand all the way. All the way to the microphone, and so when I got off stage that night, Narval was—he was pretty mad. We we had we had a big talking. We had we had a big power. Yeah, it's
0: probably good to be humbled that early on, too. Versus humbled, like you know, yeah, or never, Mm because that's pretty funny. So, um, what was that song that you were singing? That do you remember? I think it was called. I
2: think we started the set off with "Old Dirt Road." Was the first song of the set, and that's a song I wrote about growing up back home.
0: When you were done with the first album. It's obviously successful. You're getting critical acclaim. Everybody knows who you are Mm -hmm. at this point. Um, it's a different era in music too, you know. It's like people are really digesting a full album of
2: all the right. songs.
0: It's like a whole other vibe. Yeah, there's
2: no there's no downloading, or you can't get just one song. You, right. you get the whole album.
0: And as a fan, you didn't want just one song. You wanted no, to yeah, listen all. No, I mean you can
2: you can maybe buy the cassette single. Or yeah. you, I don't even know if they made forty fives anymore at that point. But most of the time, it was you went and bought the full cassette, or sure. or and maybe well, we did have some. It was probably CDs by that point. It was cassettes and CDs.
0: Were you aiming for singles at the time? Because now when
2: you write a song,
0: you're like, every song, you're trying to aim for a hit because that's how you get paid. Well, back then, albums
2: were a little more important. So you knew, you know, you probably weren't going to get more than three. If you were lucky, you get four singles. So the other songs, I wouldn't call them filler songs, but they could be more personal. They could be not necessarily meant for the radio. As long as you had, you know, these three or four that you thought were going to be radio hits, the, the, you know, the rest of the one song could be about your grandma or whatever. You know what I mean? Sure. You know, when you're more in a session now too.
0: and you're with an artist who wants to do that song, isn't it impossible to do that song now? Because you're just, well... You're talking
2: I, about something that you know is probably not a hit?
0: Yeah, you're just like, well, let's, why don't we try to write that? You know, go write the song about your grandma on your own time. <laughs> I'm going to go. Like, well, we should man, push that. you or... know,
2: I guess there's a part of you that's like, monetarily, this is probably going to be a wasted day. As far as money, as far as making money, as as a big hit, but I think if you I think that I try to I try to establish relationships with the artists. I want to write with them as long as they have a career. And I think there's just days that you just got to write the song. Right. Like Craig Wiseman told me one time, he said, we, "We we tried four or five different titles, and we kept going back to the first one, and I'd want to do something else." And he said, "He said, listen, we can we can go around this pond all day long trying to catch fish." Why don't we just catch the one that's been under the boat the whole day, you know? And so um, I think sometimes you just got to write the song because it's the song that wants to get written. Um, I do that a lot of times. Uh, you know, obviously we're going in there trying to write a hit, but this certain title is just hitting us all right. You know, and we're going. This probably won't be a single. It might not be a big hit, but I just want to write it. And th- and thank goodness, like this literally just happened twice. I've written two songs in the last year that I knew without a doubt nobody would record. I was just like, they're too country, they're too—I don't know what—they're just not. They just don't sound like a like a big radio hit uh, to me. And probably you know, music's changed and everything's more pop and up tempo, and these are more slow songs. But but I just want to write them. It's just in my heart to write these songs. Justin Moore cut one, and Blake Shelton just cut one last week. Because it's real. Yeah, because it's real. Yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So, um, so when, so when I am writing with an artist, um, I just I want to do what they want to do. You know, I say, I tell them, it's your career. I am here. I am here to help you along. I am here to help, kind of steer the boat a little bit." But I want you to put as much of you into the song as you can. And I'll tell you when I think that line needs to be a little different, or this line could go better into the course. But if this is what you want to write, let's do it because I know I am going to write with them again. We're going to have plenty of times to try to write, you know, some big radio smash.
0: When did you decide? You know, the second album comes out. Also really successful. Mm-hmm. It's still a long time till you're like, I'm going to not do the artist career anymore.
2: Yeah, it started, you know what? I have to be honest You know, with you and the, and the listeners. As much as I thought I wanted to be a star and a, and a big singer, um, I honestly, I, the only part of it I really loved was the writing of the songs and being on stage. I, I was not cut out to do the rest of it. I couldn't stand all, I mean, like it was literally no time off. Um, it's you're constantly doing a photo shoot, doing a video, interviews. I mean, it was just like everybody telling you. I mean, there's there was way too many opinions going on. I wanted to do this. The manager wanted this. The label wanted this. And it, it, literally, the only time I felt happy was when I was on stage, or because or, nobody could tell me what to do when I when I was up there and writing the songs. And so after like five or six years of constant, hey, you got to fly to Phoenix. To um, be on the radio show in the morning. I'm like, well, can I call them? Like, nope, you got to fly there because they're not playing your record. And if you should, you know, if you go there and do a free show for them, then, you know, then then they, they, they might start playing your record. And so I, it just, it, it kind of, and plus I had two kids at this point and I was just like burnt out, to be honest with you. I was tired, like me and my producer kind of part ways and, um, Everything after the second record, everything just started slowly but surely going downhill in all areas. I, I, I was—I I didn't want to go on there. I mean, I'd have to go on the road for 30, 40 days at a time. You're calling Thomas Rett, hey, buddy, how'd you do in the game today? You know, did you do your homework? And again, no cell phones. This is truck stops. <laughs> you know, you're pulling over at a truck stop in Montana, and it's 20 degrees outside to call home to see how, you know, see how his baseball game went or whatever. And it would just. I just, I think I just got burnt out. And so after like 90, I made one more album. And then about 99, the record label closed. DECA folded up. It was a part of MCA. They folded up and I just decided, I just, I'm just going to sit out for a while. I'm just going to go on the road. I'm just going to tour. I'm not going to make a record for a while, which was, you know, a bad decision for remaining relevant, but it's just what I wanted to do, you know? So for about the next five or six years, I I basically just went out on the road and played.
1: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including
0: those who aren't actively
1: looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
2: Crazy. Did Mm -hmm. you bring the family? Yeah, Thomas Redd. I've got so many videos. We watched them this weekend. I've got videos of him on the tour bus with me at five years old. He was on stage with me from the time he was five. Do all three kids play music? But I have two kids. I oh, have two kids. Yeah, I have two kids. No, my daughter doesn't. Um, she can sing and she could, she could sing and play if she wanted to, but it's just never been anything that she just had to do. Right. You know, for but sure. Thomas Red is the ham of all hams. If you watch these videos that I have, he can't stay out of the camera. Like he's literally dancing, singing, playing guitar. There's one video where he set up the camera by himself and he stands in front of it playing a. Playing a song like he just looked. like he would always be like, Daddy, look at me, Daddy, look at me. I'm trying to film my daughter, and and he'd want me to watch him ride a bike. So Thomas Rhett was way more built to be the. Did you know star. you were kind of in trouble at that point when you? No, you I mean son, because he's like, such no, a don't do it. Now he was such a normal kid. He never. He never acted like he wanted to do this. Mm -hmm. I think if I hadn't played music and I weren't in Nashville and he was playing guitar, we would think it was special if we lived back home. But because we're in Nashville, all my friends play music, everybody I deal with plays music, and he's playing music. It wasn't really that big of a stretch, so we really didn't think that the... I don't think... He didn't think it was anything special. He's just like, you don't play guitar? Why? Like, I do. Like, who doesn't play guitar or drums or whatever? Like, it was weird for him to be around other kids that didn't play music. He just thought that was the most natural thing ever.
0: When you start getting into the the co-writing stuff, you're now like moving on to, I'm going to move on to the next phase of my career. Mm. What were your, at that point, were your goals like, oh yeah, let's just aim for number one songs? I mean, there's no way you can predict what's about to happen. I
2: mean- Every day is a new day. You kind
0: of start, you have co-writers that you do most of your stuff with at that point.
2: Yeah, most of that time we were called the Peach Pickers. It was myself, Ben Hayslip, and Dallas Davidson. yeah. And Ben and I grew up together. We started writing songs. When we were fourteen, so we had that going. But then did we... you bring him out here? Like were you... he, no? But he moved here because of me. He knew yeah. we were. He knew I was doing it, and he wanted to do it. So I was kind of the guy that he knew that gave him, you know, the hey, I can go up there and do it. I know Rhett. So did everyone and, from your hometown with your newspapers about football, football, football? Mm-hmm.
0: Was it like hey, look at what our quarterback from our past is doing? And in- yeah. I mean, I imagine that it's. Well, it big still news. is.
2: My mom and dad can't really. No matter where they go, they're like, "Hey, I saw you know Thomas Red on the awards last night," or "Hey, I heard Rhett got a number one." I mean, it's con- it's it's football, but now it's music. It's yeah. just it just changed from football to music. And they still
0: they your your parents still live there. Yes, they do. Mm-hmm. Crazy.
2: Yeah, they get bombarded. My mom has a shop down there. And um I mean literally every customer that comes in is like, I saw Thomas Rhett on this or I saw him on Instagram or you know, I heard Rhett did that. I mean it's literally Do you get a non-stop. lot of like
0: like uh hey, my friends godson's <laughs> sister's yeah. daughter
2: saying, yeah. My mom well, my mom and dad have kind of slowly but surely I've weaned them off the of sending me the tapes. Um because they're usually really bad. Right, you know, um, and then you have to spend. And the then time I have to, to, then I have to spend the time. Then I have to call my mom and go, you know, they're not really good. And then she has to tell them, you know, that they're not good, or or she makes up some story or whatever. I always you know. say, like, before
0: <laughs> you make me check this,
2: do you love
0: it? Would you put it all over your social media <laughs> yeah. and tell all your friends like this, yeah. I discovered this right. and you, I'm putting my name on the line for it. If it's that good, I will check it yeah. out. The only time it's it's really it's works, than that, it really worked,
2: it. it didn't come from my parents, but a guy that I know in Missouri did the same thing, called me and said, man, if I send you a CD of this kid, will you listen to it? And I was like, yeah, whatever, Yes, yeah, it's, it's going to be horrible, but yeah, send it. He sent it and it was really good, like... I didn't really love all the songs, but I thought this this guy can sing, man. He's good, and it turned out to be Tyler Farr, you know, who's turned wow. out to be a, a big artist in, in country. So that was that was one time that it, that it did work out. Sure, yeah.
0: Okay, so you and and Ben and Dallas are are starting to kind of clean up. Was mm-hmm. that right away?
2: It was. I mean, it started like it was exactly ten years ago. I started really writing full time in two thousand seven, um, writing songs for other people. And we wrote a song called Put a Girl in It that Brooks and Dunn recorded. Um, and I'll never forget this. I was at a Brad Paisley number one party. And Jody Williams was there, who's the head of BMI here in Nashville. And he's like, hey, Rhett, what's going on, man? I said, man, you ain't going to believe this. Brooks and Dunn just put a song of mine on hold. Like, I thought it was the greatest thing. And it was. It was like Brooks and Dunn liked something that, something that I wrote. Because I would never had it cut by anybody other than myself. And I could see Jody just kind of laughing to himself, like, like, "Oh, you got a hold, all right, buddy. Yeah. Good, get, you pet me like a little dog. Like, good, good job, buddy." And then the next thing you know, Ronnie Dunn sends an email to uh, the girl at RCA and says, "I love the song. We're gonna cut it." And they cut it like the next week. That's, that's when it started. That was in 08. We wrote it in '07, but they they cut it in '07, and it came out and came out in '08. And, and then we got a Jack Ingram recorded the song called "Barefoot and Crazy." And so we had one hit in 08, in one in 09. And then in 2010, they started rolling up. We had three number ones that year. It was like ever since 2010, it's really been like on a big roll, yeah. Do you come
0: across a lot of artists that are fans of yours? Because you know, yeah, a lot kids. of them must have grown up. Oh yeah, all
2: the like young it. kids. That, I mean, for some reason, That Ain't My Truck has stood the test of time. I don't know why the song gods decide what, what songs last and what don't. But that ain't my truck. Is one of the ones from from the nineties that, that literally everybody knows. Why do you think that every cover band plays it? Even Blake Shelton plays it in his in his yeah, shows. And it's yeah. like I don't know why that one stood out and other and other ones didn't. But yeah, any kid that you get coming up who's twenty to to twenty five, you know, when they write with you, like, dude, that ain't my truck's the jam, man. You know, whatever I sang that and all my cover bands and and blah blah blah. It's, it's weird for me because um, I don't think of myself as that guy. How how they're looking at me is how I look at Hank Jr. and Charlie Daniels and Merle Haggard. Like I, th- those guys, I think you know I should be saying this to them. You shouldn't yeah. be saying this to me. Um, it, it's kind of weird to, and I don't even put myself on the level of Hank Jr. or Merle, but but I do. I am starting to get kind of the little admiration club of man. You wrote That Ain't My Truck. Well, that's badass, dude. You know what I mean? Like these little that, country boys. I
0: mean, obviously, it's hard to tell when you have... You literally have enough number one songs for three greatest hit CDs. If this were a different era, you know? You have yeah. you have that many. I mean, do you think that that's the song that will... Uh, even including the ones you've written for other people? That's my song, yeah. That's
2: the song. Just like Die Happy Man, you know, for Thomas yeah. Rhett. Is I mean he might have a bunch of you know hopefully he has thirty more giant hits over his career but that's just that was his first big one that's going to be the one he will never be able to play a show and not and not play that song right. Garth Brooks could never do a concert and not play Friends in Low Places yeah no way y- you know I mean when you do Rolling k- Stones couldn't play could not play Honky Tonk Women it's it's just one of those I don't know why it stuck but it's uh and I've written some big songs um for for other artists but. Even when I do shows, you know, songwriter shows, and I'm playing a Blake Shelton hit or an Aldine hit or a Luke Bryan hit that I wrote, there's always that one guy in the audience going, That ain't my truck, man. <laughs> you know, <laughs> or after the gig, you know, they'll come up and get a picture or something. And Some people don't even get it. Some people don't even understand that I'm writing songs for other people. Like after the gig, they'll come up and go, Why'd you sing all them Blake Shelton songs? <laughs> I'm like, Did you not hear before each song? I said I wrote this. You know, they're like, like, "No, I was
0: buying beer." Yeah, they're (laughs) like, "How come you didn't
2: play?" You know, Katie brought my guitar back today off your first record. You know, they think I'm doing a concert. You know, like this is a songwriter show, and I'm playing the songs that I wrote, and they don't they don't understand that that I wrote hunting and fishing and loving every day for Luke. They're just go. I guess he just wanted to play that. I don't know why he played that. (laughs) I mean, that's so crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When
0: you were saying that, you can actually remember all the lyrics to your to these hits. How?
2: I don't know. Just ever since I was a kid. I guess because did when you grow- remember
0: Merle Haggard's yeah, songs oh yeah. too? Like do you have is your books not just you know your what? songs? I, I that guess it's know.
2: because when you grow up in a small town with nothing to do um and with no radio
0: in your car, No radio. Like
2: like you just, you know, to play it to actually play a song, you had to put an album on the on the turntable and put the needle on it and I guess you know, you just did that so many times that you just you just remembered it. And plus um I was always trying to mimic stuff on the guitar, so I guess like my brain was just automatically in tune to, to memorize stuff as much as I could because I knew... Because it wasn't like, if you heard a song on the radio, there was no way to ever hear it again until it came on the radio again. I guess so you soaked up as much of it as you could during that first three minutes and remember it because you had to be able to go to the record store and go, I heard this song, um, and the guy's are going, yeah, which one? And you're going, you know, the one that said... Uh, my blood runs cold. Right.
3: Something,
2: something just been so angel is center. That's, you know, that song, centerfold song. So I guess because we didn't have, you couldn't rewind anything. It was like, it wasn't like I could go to Google and go, what's the centerfold song? Yeah. You, you heard it one time in your mom's station wagon, and it might be two weeks before she took you to the record store, and you didn't, you couldn't hear it again unless it just happened to come on.
0: It's so interesting because you know Jay Giles band really is kind of like a one-hit wonder for guys who had like some sick records, yeah. mm-hmm. You know, and the idea of what a one-hit wonder is—love stinks. Not, this is obviously, a, yeah, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's obviously a totally different conversation, but the idea that artists can be one-hit wonders and have incredible careers as artists—you yeah. know, the, all these records—how mm-hmm. fortunate it is to have yeah. that.
2: I think I was born a natural imitator too. I, I can always like pick up on quirks that people have. Like every everywhere I go, someone says imitate Luke or imitate so and so. How know? do you imitate and, Luke? Uh, you know, it's uh, <laughs> I don't, uh, but uh, I won't do it around Luke. He's asked me before. He's like, do it for me, and I was like, no, nah, I can't do it. What's your Blake Shelton? But uh, I don't know about Blake. But uh, it's just, I, I, I don't know. I guess some people are just born, like Jim Carrey or you know, whoever. Yeah. I guess you're just born or not born. Picking up on subtleties of of thing, things, things sure. like, and so I guess that's why I, I think I was just born to memorize things. I, it's nothing that I, that I practice. But the weird thing is, is I can't remember what I wrote today, actually. But if you ask me to sing a song, I could tell you that. But you um, will when it gets to radio. And I you could to tell to you this song it. was song number three on side four of Zeppelin two. You know, whatever sure. that. Sure.
0: So usually we do a thing where we uh, where we list five people and you just say what comes off the mm-hmm. top of your head. But your stories are are kind of amazing. So I'm going to just name, you know, like five artists and okay. just kind of want to hear, I don't know, whatever
2: comes to the top of your head. Okay. But let's start with Blake Shelton. Blake Shelton, idiot. <laughs> 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 um, the quickest, witted, funniest person I've ever met. He, Blake... It doesn't matter what you say, he can twist it, turn it, and and make you look stupid. Like I'll never forget I walked into I guess it was his dressing room or somewhere and there's forty, fifty people in there and Blake literally turned around, hugged me, picked me up, kissed me on both cheeks, and told me how much he'd missed me, blah, 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 in front of all these people. And then he goes, uh, man, he goes, I ain't heard from you in a long time. You got my new number? And I said, No, I don't have it. And he said, Yes. And and walked out of the room. Like just endless, like In, on, late, on What stage. you see on him, yeah. him badgering Adam Levine and everybody on The Voice is the true Blake Shelton. This is not a made-up character. Um, and and you've
0: I've, had you've really kind of defined.
2: Had, a lot of. I've, his... I've had fifteen Blake Shelton cuts. Yeah, I mean, you're a huge He's part of, the, of his by voice. far the most of anybody. But Blake is a, a huge an aficionado of classic country music. He loves classic country music. He can sit down with a guitar and play you. Any any song you want to hear, fantastic voice, and just the wittiest person ever. I mean, he is the voice. Yeah. Jason Aldeen. Jason Aldeen's just the subtle, low-key, cool dude. You know, he's that guy, you're not really sure what he's thinking. And he has a fantastic voice. And Jason really knows hit songs. He he has an uncanny ability to um to weed through the thousands and thousands of songs that he gets that he gets pitched and picked and pick the right one and he just brought more of a southern rock edge you know to the to the music and he's real quiet and got the cowboy hat down low and he's he's just a mysterious cool dude yeah dustin lynch dustin lynch is one of my favorite people he's 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 one of the guys that we were talking about earlier that um you know was like 30 30 years old grew up you know probably hearing my songs on the on the radio and it's been cool to uh to watch him come from no record deal to to being you know very, very huge, and I've, I have his current single out now called called Small Town Boy, and uh, he's just a he's a studier of music, and he's just he's he's on the verge of of being the net, one of the next superstars.
0: I wish that in in the pop world that you know former artists went and pursued songwriting. I mean, I think a lot of writers in general used to be artists or aspired right. to be artists mm-hmm. or they want to be artists, but there's rarely that somebody who's been a successful artist decides, you know what? No, I really just want to focus on the writing thing. It seems like that's just not something that... Maybe it's an ego
2: deflator. You know what I mean? I Why? guess if you, I don't know. Maybe if you've been a art, big artist at one time and now you're not anymore and you're like going out, maybe they think it's Beneath them, sometimes, or you know, what I mean, like a lot of people want to keep their mystique. Or I mean, obviously, the more you hang around people, you're not as cool as you were before you met them. You know what I'm saying? So I right. think maybe a lot of artists that were big at one time and now aren't doing much feel that feel that that they're um, putting their self out there. You it know Probably what I mean?
0: helps hear that there are giant billboards of you every time you have a number <laughs> one song, too. So it kind of, <laughs> at least, it keeps you motivated to be, you
2: know. Yeah, but I don't do it for that, man. I just do it because. I mean, I've made money, and, and, and I've you know, had the, the billboards and the awards and stuff like that, but, it man, like we were on tour. Thomas Shrett was just on tour, and uh, Ryan Hurd, who opened for him as a new artist, we were standing on the side of the stage watching the show, and he just looked at me and said, why do you still do this? What was your answer? I said, I literally took my phone out of my pocket, and I Googled the album cover of Kiss Alive 2, or no, Kiss Alive, the first one, and on the back, it's a picture of Cobo Hall Arena in Detroit, packed with like 20,000 people and these two kids holding up this Kiss poster that they drew. They live forever on the back of this album cover. I said, because when I saw that, that lit the fire that I had to do this somehow, some way, and I will never lose the feeling of opening that album and seeing that. That's what makes me want it. That's why I still do this. Not for money, not for awards, any of that stuff, it's because... I want to be, when I'm 90 years old, I want somebody to go. So, you wrote uh, Hunting and Fishing Lover Day Luke Bryan? Like, what was that like? You knew Luke Bryan? You know, like, I just love the history of music so much that I want to be, I just want to, I want to be involved in it. I, it's something that I, I do it for that because of what it made me feel like when I was 10. And that's
0: sort of why we do the podcast. Anyway, I just think it's fascinating to hear stories about still, even if they're contemporaries who are busy, it's still interesting. To hear like,
2: yeah, how did you write those Luke Bryan songs? Like, for real, like, how did you write? Like, you I know? would love to sit with just them. I, I could pick out twenty of my favorite iconic singers and writers. I would, I would wear them out. With just questions. asking them questions. I would right? ask, yeah, I'd be like, so, like, when you wrote that with Keith Richards, like, was he like? Was he like drinking Jack Daniels the whole time, or was that when he was on heroin, or like did Keith come up with that rip? You know what I mean? I would wear them out with 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 questions. I just love the people that are that are behind the scenes making it. It it could be the the engineers. I would sit there with the with Glenn Johns or Andy Johns for four days and be like, dude, like did Mick come in with with that idea? They're right on the spot. Like I want to be that guy when I'm ninety, where people come to me and go.
3: What You, wrote, said, you tell,
2: wrote, you knew Blake Shelton? You know what I mean? It's like, it's, I'm still a fan. Sure. I, the reason I'm still in it and do it is because I'm still as much a fan as I was as when I was 10. Okay, so
0: then let's go with Luke Bryan next.
2: Mm-hmm. Tell me about Luke. L- Luke is the real, he's the real thing. He um, he came from not far from where I'm from in South Georgia, grew up real country on a peanut farm, and he has figured out a way He works because he remains Luke Bryan. There's nothing that he does that is fake. He is just the most authentic country country boy. All the girls love him, and all the dudes are like, man, Luke Bryan's cool, you know what I mean? I mean, Luke, Luke can go and play two nights in a row at Fenway Park and sell the whole thing out, and I promise you, the second he gets home, him and his boys are barefooted in their pond catching catfish.
0: Only because I was hanging out with Thomas earlier, I feel like we should ask, you know, talk about some of the songs you've written mm-hmm. with him. But before we get to him, let's go with songs that you guys wrote together, like for Lee Bryce,
2: mm-hmm. Park My Party. Yeah, that I was mean, a song that was never supposed to happen. That was like the gods that day were like, okay, we're dropping this in your lap. Thomas Rhett and Luke Laird and I were writing. We couldn't. We tried for two hours. We couldn't think of anything. Thomas Rhett was over it. He's like, let's go get something to eat. So we go out in the parking lot, and Lee Rice is standing in the parking lot. And we go, what you doing, man? He's like, he's like, uh, man, I got I got a meeting in like forty five minutes. I got to go to. And I go, well, you want to try to write a song real quick? Because Thomas Red, yeah, he's, he's over it, you know. He's like, yeah, I mean, I got forty five minutes. Let's try to write something. He said, I said, what do you need? He goes, I just need that jam that people are playing in the parking lot, you know. And so. He said, I got to make a phone call real quick. I'll be there in five minutes. I went inside. We went inside and immediately went, parking lot, party. Luke Luke pulled up a beat. And by the time Lee came in, we already had the chorus going. And so that song just literally, it wouldn't have happened if Thomas Rhett hadn't just been like, let's go get something to eat. That one fell, that one fell out of the sky.
0: That's so funny. When you do hunting and fishing, well, not to go back to Luke Bryan, but the hunting, and fishing, and loving every day, because obviously you, you mentioned that and that's a huge record. Um, how do you how do you write that song? That's that's
2: one of those songs you asked me earlier. What's it like to write with an artist and they want to want to write an idea that you don't think's a hit? Yeah. Um, Luke, we, we were out on tour with Luke writing, and he calls us over to his bus. And he goes, "I got this idea," and he's sitting there stomping his foot on barefooted, stomping his foot on the floor, hunting. Fishing and loving every day. Of course, we loved it because that's what we grew up doing. But we're like, you think radio in 2016 is going to play a song about hunting, fishing? You know, everything's so freaking politically correct and you can't even catch a fish, you know, or everybody's mad. And so, um, we said, we don't care. This is what this is. Let's write it, you know? So we wrote it as true as we could. We wrote it how we all three, all four of us grew up, me, Ben, Dallas, and Luke. And Luke said, I don't know if this song will ever do anything he said but it's what hit me this morning that's what i want to write and so we wrote it with him and and uh year and a half later he puts it out you know and it's this giant number one song and it fits that's what he does luke hunts and fish fishes all the time and um and he also has a huge sponsorship with cabela's you know so he's like (laughs) now he's got his own hunting fishing uh (laughs) hats and shirts and, and clothing lines, so that was cool. I, I don't think I don't think there's many artists that could have put that out and people sure. believed it, you know what I mean? I th- yeah, I don't
0: think any other artists really yeah, can Bl- I think that Blake
2: out. probably could, because yeah. Blake loves to hunt. I mean, that's all he thinks about. It. I mean, he's tweeting pictures of him growing corn, you know, all the time when he's sitting at The Voice, <laughs> missing my cornfield or whatever. I hope it rains today. But there, there's, you know, I don't think Thomas Rhett could put that song out and it'd be a yeah. hit, because I don't think people... He doesn't project that image. I mean, Thomas Rhett grew up hunting and fishing, but it's not something that he does 24 hours a day like me and Luke. He's not
0: thinking about it every
2: day, no, no. he's no. also and,
0: thinking about performing in front of 20,000 people. Yeah, exactly. People so march. that's
2: just not mm-hmm. his thing, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So it's uh like I going back to Luke's um genuineness. I think that that's why that song worked. Uh my f- I think my
0: favorite is uh dirt on my boots. Yeah. I got Party. them on right now. These are the boots.
2: Were those the ones that these you are, were thinking yeah. of? Yeah, yeah. I bought these boots in 2010. Still, the heel is like it's like a triangle. Like the the side, I must walk on the sides of my heels because the heel is like <laughs> absolutely gone. These boots, but I bought them in two thousand ten for like hundred and twelve dollars at Thanksgiving when I was at home in Georgia. And um, I'm kind of I'm kind of superstitious. Like I think I got it from sports. Like if we like if I tied my left shoe before the game and we won, I always tied my left shoe. Yeah, yeah, till we lost, you know. Or I would I would do like I wash my body first and then my hair. Backwards, you know, I do the opposite because we won today when I did that on accident or whatever. And um, so I, so a lot of good things have happened with these boots. That's why I still wear them, even though my feet kill me all the time. Um, and so it, this was one of those days where we couldn't think of anything to write, And I was just staring at the floor like, God, please give me an idea because it sucks. And I'm looking at my boots and they're real muddy because I'd been at my farm and I just said, what about dirt on my boots? And um, we, we, you know, we just went to town on that. Never in a million years, when I left that room, did I think that song was ever going to be hit. I never thought about it I again. Love that never record. thought about it again. And then, um, so then nice. they said John Party's going to cut it. So I got kind of excited for a minute, and then I was like, "Oh wait, that's that's the wor- that no 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 John Party can't cut that because he just put out the biggest song of his life called Head Over Boots. There is no way in the world that they will put that song out. They will not put out two boot songs in a row." And then head over boots, most played song of 2016. And then uh, Mike Dungan, the head of Capitol Records, told John, he said, "He says I don't care if you say boots five hundred times. He goes, he goes. All I, all I care about is having two major hits in a row. I don't care what they're called. And we're gonna it put might it help out
0: too. It's like kind of part. Of it becomes." Those, those things are not bad. It kind of helps your brand. I mean, yeah. you know, it's something where, oh yeah, that's the guy who does songs about boots. <laughs> and so and now he's so got bad. another
2: song on his on his album called Cowboy Hat. And he goes, we couldn't put now. He goes, that's going too far. Two boots right. and then a hat song. He said, the, the hat song might come later. But we couldn't do boot, boot, hat. <laughs> boot, but um, boot, hat. Th- that's one of those songs that, that uh, when you've written as many songs as, as I have and you have and Joe's written, um, it used to be every day was the Super Bowl. You went in there every day like, this has to be the greatest song of all time. I'm gonna write this thing for 10 hours if that's what it takes. And then when you've written your thousandth song... And and all the big songs that you thought were going to be hits that never were, it's like you, you're setting yourself up for failure almost every day going in there thinking that this is going to be a smash. So I, my mindset now is, yeah, I'm going to try to write it as good as I can do it, but I'm going to write it and I'm going to leave it and I'm going to be like, I'm not going to think about this again because it would kill me if I call my publisher every day going, anybody put dirt on my boots on hold? Anybody put dirt on my boots on hold? Like today, Jason Aldean took a song off hold of mine that he's had for three months and I'm like, want to punch the wall. Do you um, call
0: him? Because you know. No, I'm and I'm up.
2: not mad at Jason. It doesn't fit him. You know, if he did not eh. think it works for him, it doesn't work. But if I called every, I mean, I'm mad after one day of finding out that he that he's not going to cut that song. If I called him every day and be like, well, what's happening? Is Jason still like it? Like, yeah. it's too much of a. I mean, it just wears you down. So at this point, yeah, going there, keep tr- your head down, yeah. And do your job. I just go and, there. I try to write the best. It's like watching corn grow. I mean, it's like you plant corn. If you sat there and watched this this kernel. You would so, kill yourself because yeah. it's not going to grow for nine months. It's going to yeah. take it's going to take all summer and into the fall for this thing to be ten foot tall. You got to plant it, water it, and get out. And then and then uh, two weeks later, you'll come back and it's a foot high. You know, and it's like that with songs. It's just like you got Like when you've written so many, there comes a point where you'll drive yourself crazy if you don't just let them go. And so, so I just let dirt on my boots go. I was like, I don't know if anybody ever record this ever. And then it turns out to be like three week number one. So you just, yeah, you just got to so show up. The number one thing is you have to show up and write. You can't write it if you don't write it. And then you just got to let it, let the chips fall where they may. And I do think that songs find them, they, I think they wind up where they're supposed to be. There's the song, like I've had so many songs that a bigger artist was going to cut and they took it off hold. And I'm like wanting to run off, drive off a cliff because I'm like, this song will never do anything now. And then a new artist cuts it and it's gigantic. You know, I, I, the song knew that Luke Luke's didn't need it. You know what I mean? Yeah. He knew that, that, this, that this guy needed What's that song. What's an example of that? Well, I can tell you one. Um, Rodney Atkins, uh, Joe Nichols and Rodney Atkins, uh, neither one of them had had a big hit in at least three years. And um, we wrote the song called Gimme That Girl, which yeah. was our first number one as the peach pickers. Um, loved this song. A few art, big artists had it on hold, and they took it off hold, and Joe Nichols was going to cut it. And I love Joe Nichols and his voice, but just from a business standpoint, I was like, I'm not sure. I mean, Joe hadn't had a hit in three, four years. You know, Three-week number one. Um, Rodney Atkins hadn't had a hit in two or three years, and Chris Young put the song... That Chris Young and Rodney both had uh, take a back road on hold, and um, but Rodney had it first. But Chris really wanted to cut it, so on paper, you would rather have Chris Young cut it because he's hot and had three or four number ones in a row, and you think that's a guaranteed hit. But Rodney had it, Rodney had it first, and so you know, we'll, you know we had to honor that. So you do it, and it was the BMI most played song of the year. So you never know. You you know, you can't discriminate. It's it's gotta be the song's gonna go where it's supposed to go.
0: Yeah. I mean they're all capable artists, so it's like Yeah, yeah.
2: I mean Low Cash yeah. had never had a number one in their life, you know. Right. And uh, I wrote um I know somebody that a bunch of that a few artists had on hold, and as soon as they took it oh, off, crazy. Low Cash got it and they and, and went to, went to number one. So I've learned now that, you know, a song coming off hold sucks for that day, but I've kind of taught myself to be like, well, obviously it's supposed to go, it's, it's got a better home somewhere else.
0: All right, last last artist I'll ask you about because I, I know we could keep going through another 50 of them, but Thomas Rhett.
2: <laughs> Thomas Rhett is um, a superstar, That, I, but I can't, like, every, no matter where I go, they're like, you got to be so proud. Like, you have to be so proud of Thomas Rhett. A guy is just killing it, killing it, killing it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm proud of him, but not because he can sing. I'm like, you know how many singers out there are the biggest jerks in the world? It's like, I, I'm, I'm a fan of Thomas Rhett because of, because of Thomas Rhett. Number one, first, first and foremost, and Joe London can tell you, like, he's just the dude. I mean, Thomas Rhett is like the kid. If he never had a hit again, people would still write with him because they like him. He's just genuine. He's the, he's the most thoughtful. He's he he has empathy for other people. He um, you don't just write with Thomas Rett, You become you become best friends with him when when you write with him, and it's been so cool because not many fathers and sons work well together in any job. I don't care if you're a, a plumber, you know, you and your dad are gonna get in a fight over the over the business. And it's just been so cool to be able to write songs uh, with Thomas Redd. and we've been doing it since he was you know eight eight years old. But um. He he is a superstar, and I think gonna get bigger and bigger. But it's but it's still cool that, that that he's just my he's just my son. You know when I when I really look at him, that's the first thing I think of. He's yeah. just my kid.
0: Well, thank you for doing this uh, for a number of reasons, but you know your your stories important for all these genres. For you know the fact that you you hustled your way up from. Nothing from having to give up your dream of being a football player all the way to saying, you know what, I really know that if I pursue this with the same effort that I pursue trying to be the best football player, mm-hmm. that I can have that if I have that discipline, yeah, that I can then, you know, become a, uh, a working musician. And then to go to being the top of your game as an artist, And then say, you know what, I'm going to redefine myself again and then do it as a writer. Yeah, It's hard enough to get one song that's a hit and and to have basically 30, I mean, you're talking about 27 number ones plus all the ones that didn't get to number one, Mm. not including the fact that, like you're saying, I, I think the most impressive thing is that You know, you're obviously a good dad. You obviously have a you have a son who's also becoming a good dad, and there's we're all trying to figure out how can we have a family in music, how can we pursue our dream and not ruin our future children or children if we have them, Mm -hmm. and so you know you've led by example, and and people speak highly behind your back also because. You're also fun to be around, so you've done something right yeah. for yourself as well as Tom. Well, thanks. And, yeah, you know. I
2: think I do think that um, growing up where I grew up, not only my my parents and my grandparents were like the hardest working people I ever I ever knew. Then you then you go to football and it's like the Marine Corps. And I really think that where I grew up is the reason that I'm that I've stuck it out. Like because I just you know I don't have the most talent in the world. I'm not the best guitar player, not the best singer, not the best writer. But I feel like that I outwork just about every everybody. Uh, I'm not that guy that that gets that dream in the middle of the night and I write the song in ten minutes. Um, it's not romantic. I'm not at a bar writing this thing on a napkin. It's like I get up and do it. You know, every five days a week, like a job. Um, it's not the most sexy or a romantic way to to write songs, but uh, it's just I think that's just the way I grew up. Is you just can't sit around and just hope something happens. You gotta you gotta really. Get after it, and that'd be my biggest advice to all the no matter if you're in l a new york austin Nashville, Miami, wherever you are in this country um trying to trying to do this, you gotta show up, you know you might be the most talented kid in the world, but if you don't get out there and do it somebody's 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 gonna get it, yeah, yeah, other than you
0: yeah and and again like uh uh for all the years that neither of us win BMI awards, you know that that hustle, you, you you taught me before I ever even got to talk to you. But it's true. It's like you can sit there and you can dream about it, and and uh, you know for for all the people who are about to be BMI songwriter of the year and and haven't had their first cut yet, you know, thanks for listening and thank yeah. you for thank being you guys,
2: here. man, appreciate it. I appreciate you. Yes.
0: Don't miss the 51st Annual CMA Awards this Wednesday at 8 o'clock, 7 o'clock Central on ABC. See performances by your favorite artists, including Garth Brooks, Carrie Underwood, Luke Bryan, and many more. For more information, visit cmaawards.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed... Be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andtheriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silverstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. On next episode, we sit down with Nicole Galleon.
3: And I think, you know what, I'm done. Like I knew that was like the nail in the coffin of I'm not doing the artist thing anymore. And I told like Rodney and I were like, let's have a baby. So we got pregnant. And I remember thinking, again, I'm talking to God. I talked to God a lot. And I was like, I don't know what my heart's going to tell me to do when I hold a baby like I hold my child for the first time and if that means that I'm not a writer anymore then I'm willing to let that go and um I had gotten a few cuts while I was pregnant which I like to attribute to baby karma um what were the cuts we were us was one of them
0: never heard of it but just
3: but kidding. it had not come out like we had just <laughs> right. we heard that he had cut it and we heard that he had like three or four different people that were in the running to maybe sing the duet with him and none of them were tied down so i'm like are we gonna lose this song i like there was an, and we're not, i'm not close to that camp and i think they've kept it pretty quiet so i still was like i gotta cut but i don't know what's gonna happen with it um And again I hadn't held my baby, so I have this baby and then like a month later I get pulled in to write with Miranda for the first time. And that day we wrote automatic and we wrote platinum. Like in four hours. We wrote that was like our You wrote both of them in four hours? Both of them in one day, four hours. Come
0: on. That's not real.
3: That's real. And I remember before I left, I I was like she was talking about recording her part on we were us and i was like it happened like you sang on it i didn't know like i i didn't i'd heard several names were thrown out there and she's like oh yeah she's like we worked we worked our asses off on it
0: until next time this is ross Golan.